Today's episode is brought to you by the Vegas Beer Guys and the Sounds and Cinema Podcast. Everything sequel contains explicit language. And why the fudge not, you melon farmer? Hello and welcome to the Everything Sequel Podcast. This is the Naked Gun Edition. Today we're talking the Naked Gun two and a half, the smell of fear. I am, of course, Michael Schantz of the How Dare You Awards. Joining me, as always, the mad Brit, your friend, Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions. Say hi, Tom. This is Frank Drebin, Police Squad. Throw down your guns and come on out with your hands up. Or come on out, then throw down your guns, whichever way you want to do it. Just remember the two key elements. One, <laughs> guns down. Two, come on out. <sighs> See, now that's when the cop shit works for me. Oh, my God. It's so That stuff funny. I love. I What was great, I, I thought that was hilarious, and then I realized having recently done Batman v Superman on a watch along yeah that could have been a a real line in the in Zack Snyder's oh, Batman v Superman there are lines like that with that many options in right. that have no irony yeah exactly so th- they're really onto something about you know film dialogue that's taking itself too seriously well and one of my favorite things is right after that when the the cops have the house surrounded and uh the, the bad guy kind of ping like one bullet. <laughs> it looks like he's holding all the cards, Frank. Yeah. Fucking great. I got I, that scene. You know, it's a, it, there's, so, there's so many gags in that scene that are, that are some of my all-time favorites. Mm-hmm. They're located in that scene. But this time around, I couldn't ignore the fact that it was, you know, police brutality and yes. low-income housing. And ended with O.J. Simpson in a militarized police vehicle. It, it was just, it, but, you know, it almost ruined what have, for me, been all-time highs in comedy movies. In comedy, right. And that, well, and struggle, so, is, that struggle is real when, when watching these movies. And that's my struggle with this whole movie. The amount of comedy mind out of police brutality... Is hard. It, that that one got to me this time, and disability too. Oh yeah, I think. I mean, I'm not saying it's the only thing, but I just you know. No, it's not the only thing. Yeah, because we haven't talked because we haven't yet talked about homophobia, which is also a big thing here. Yeah. Um, but there's. I mean, I'm just like you. You know, you were talking about the 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 comedy hit rate. Yeah. You know, at seventy. 70, 75. Or rather 75. I think it's about 76. Right. <laughs> it's right it's right there on the on the line. But the, the amount of police brutality jokes there are more of those jokes in this movie than any other yeah, single joke. And that and that that's rough, man. That's rough. It's rough. It, yeah, it's rough and and it's you have to look at you have to look at the intention of the joke and yeah it's it's that there's a there's jokes about police brutality that are that are kind of um self-inflicted jokes that are jokes 
aimed at the police. Yes. And then there's those that are, you know, purely about, that are aimed basically at liberals who say police, the police brutality is, you know, um, is excessive. So so yeah. it, 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 it swings both ways. And to some extent, I think that's permissible in the kind of comedy that they're doing here, which is avowedly bad taste comedy. But mm-hmm. even allowing for that, it's when you start to see kind of patterns, you know, like a certain like humor targeted at one specific minority group, right, in a concentrated fashion again and again and again. That that's that's the only time I start to get um, uncomfortable with it is when is when I say, "What well, you know?" There's like there's a lot of jokes about gay people. Like we're in the double digits now. Right. There's something more going on here than, uh, you know, being politically incorrect in a kind of general sense where you're offending everyone all the time. Because yeah. if that was the case, there would, you know, it wouldn't be concentrated towards specific minority groups repeatedly. Yes. <laughs> so that's what that's where I kind of um, I draw the line. But you know, to to drag it back to comedy. Uh, as we're going to have yeah, to keep good. doing throughout this podcast. I find that, you know, 76% hit rate is, I think, where it's at. And a lot of that is jokes that count as double because they're like yes, rephrased, right. no, rephrased jokes from the original or they're running gags or jokes that are even repeated within the frame of the movie that work. And when mm-hmm. that works, it, it, it it's it's like, that's a three-pointer right there well and for me too there is some there like structurally there are some great written jokes in this movie and And, yeah i agree yeah and like you said the hit rate is at such a high rate and also a lot of this movie is silly yes and i adore silliness (laughs) i mean i really I will latch on to silliness, but but silly. You 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 mean you got it you got it right on the money there because it's silliness done in a very smart way. Yeah, right. And those moments in the movie are just, just sublime. Uh, you know, I, I'm still I'm still in awe of, of when you know when you see something that is so structurally ingrained into the movie and yet produces a really stupid joke. Yeah. Right. Uh, and this is late on in the movie, but something that really stood out to me this time was uh, um, the mopping, the sliding on the floor <laughs> after a mopping gag. They're about to get into yeah. an elevator, and in the previous scene, we, we've seen a custodian mop the floor. Mopping. And, and all three of them. It's just like, yeah, the, and then, you know, they when they go, they slide right past the elevator door. And me breaking it down to you sounds ridiculous and not funny. Right. <laughs> but if you saw the care and attention with which this joke was built for this, for this um, you know, really buffoonish payoff. Yes. You, you can, you know, you can admire that level of craft. 
I well, think. and I feel the same way. This movie has one of my all-time favorite jokes, and it's two jokes in succession <laughs> okay. because one is character-based and one is wordplay. Oh, interesting. So when he goes to the scene of the crime, of the of the first explosion, yes, and he's seeing Jane for the first time, and then she starts taking him around the place. Yeah. And he says, Jane, can you tell me a little bit about this man? And she says, he was a Caucasian. And his response is, Caucasian? And she has to explain to him, yeah, you know, a white guy. He had a mu- uh, mustache, about six foot three. Awfully big mustache. <laughs> I fucking lose it every time I watch this movie. Six foot three, awfully big mustache. Love it. That's that's absolutely wonderful. That's it's really so good. I just... I just adore it. Mhm. Yep. I can't I can't disagree with that. I mean if you know we're talking about our favorite <laughs> our favorite moments up front why not? Uh, cause I, I, know, have right? a, I have a feeling it's going to get darker. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, for me one of the greatest running gags in any comedy movie is the animals being released from the zoo. Oh yeah. <laughs> Every time you think this gag can't come back, it comes back. I've said this in one of our previous podcasts, and I'll say it again. Last time it was in a hallway in Gremlins 2. This time I think it was in front of a hotel or something. It's on the street. But you don't know how funny a galloping giraffe is yep. until you see it. That's right. Well, th- this movie obviously every knows time. that. Yeah. Um, but I always remember, I always remember watching as a kid and just picking out that, that moment. And, you know, it's like, what, why do, you know, why do I enjoy it so much? Uh, and as an adult, I know it's because it's, it's because of the way the, the gag is structured over the course of the movie. And, mm-hmm. you know, for, that's, that's the, always the missing element in comedy movies that don't work is where, the mm-hmm. screenplay itself and the direction and everything is working towards the comedy. It's not just one element. Yes. And that's what so many comedy movies miss. You can't just have a Get funny... Get wrong. Right, exactly. You can't just have one... You know, you just can't have one funny guy running around a movie and it be a funny movie. You need everyone to be on the same page. You, when I saw Coming Digit to America... While yeah. I enjoyed some of the performances, and I'm sure we'll talk about this at another time. At some point, right. I remember thinking, you know, where's John Landis? You know, where is the comedy direction? Where is the, you know, where's the comedy writing? Mm-hmm. And this movie is, is so good at that. And one of the reasons I gravitate towards this more than the original movie, which is a little bit more set PC, is that I think they disperse the comedy a little better. Okay. In this one, across the screenplay, across the supporting cast, it's less of a Leslie Nielsen. Like some of my favorite lines come from supporting characters. Yeah, yeah. Um, or well, not my favorite lines, but favorite comedy favorite moments, parts, scenes, yeah, bits. Um, I find the 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 uh, yeah, actually, all through the supporting cast, all the way from Anthony James to Richard Griffiths, I think this movie is. Yeah, exactly. Quality. <laughs> Anthony James, Richard Griffiths, just, just a delight. 
It's it's re- one of I mean, things that this the all these movies get right, but for some reason really reads for me in this one is, and this goes back to Police Squad undoubtedly, where you know, the cast of Police Squad and even to an extent Airplane, could be in the non-ironic version of this story just yeah, as easily, right. and for some reason here when I think about Anthony James who is this incredible Hollywood character actor, I mean. Wonderful, skinny and unforgiven. Yeah, unforgiven, also in the heat of the night. This this right. guy has really got some chops uh, as a character actor. The fact that they... Because I can see a world where they cast... He like, plays a henchman, basically. Yeah. An assassin. I can see a world in which they put Weird Al Yankovic in that role. Mm-hmm. But this movie is well, smart enough... Well, to... I mean, he's in all three yeah. of these movies. So. And he's in this movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> playing a similar role. Um, he's also a guy who shoots up the (laughs) the police department, but the fact that they've gone with the real guy instead of the, instead Instead of of the the, the spoof guy, the spoof, right. To do the spoof, it makes all the difference. Yeah, exactly. And even a little, I know Richard Griffiths is an accomplished comic actor and even at that time was known for that, but... He wasn't there because he was a comedian. He was there because he was he was a British theatre actor. Yeah. And they wanted to drop things on his head and laugh. <laughs> right. And that is exactly the right call. Although, like, I, towards the end of this movie, I was like, is that literally... It almost felt like they were trying to challenge themselves to give Richard Griffiths things that he wouldn't make funny. Because by the end of the movie, it's like <laughs> right. they, they hand things in his lap that don't seem funny and he makes everything funny everything literally have... it's like comedy alchemy you just hand i'm sure it was like it's not even a gag when you gave it to him that speech he gives the most boring speech in the world right. and it absolutely reads that way and there's no jokes right no jokes that is all richard griffiths is acting well but not just that but i mean this okay well we haven't even talked quite yet, but, our, you know, for the benefit of the listeners, we're talking about The Naked Gun, Two and a Half, The Smell of Fear, which was a 1991 movie. Oh, yeah. Let's do that bit. <laughs> directed by David. Is it Zucker? Yeah. Do you say Zucker or Zucker? I've never said I think said it's Zucker. Zucker. <laughs> All right. But if you don't know these guys, you should, or you, you do and don't realize it, because they're responsible for Airplane and Top Secret. Of course, at some point, they started doing the scary movies, 3, 4, and 5. But he also did Basketball and Ruthless People. Hmm. This uh, this particular movie ups the budget a bit. Uh, this budget is $23 million, which is like almost double the original budget. But, oh. uh, you know, this movie, this movie outdid the original... In every way. Opening weekend, 20.8, wow. and USA and the World, $86.9 million. I did not know that. Yeah, the original was like 78, so barely, but but did. But I wanted to say that to get to this, because <laughs> I wanted to say this movie was made in 1991, so we are 30 years from when this movie was made, and I have never for a moment forgotten Richard Griffiths saying he thrust his purple-headed warrior into her quivering mound of love pudding. And why, and why would you? 
Ah, uh, the quizzical nature. <clears throat> excuse me, the quizzical nature by which he's reading that erotic book. I mean, it just just cracked me up 30 years ago and still cracks me up today. Well, I mean, we recently did a, a, a Highlander 2 watch-along, which was also from 1991. Um, so it, it'll be no surprise to, to anyone who saw that. Mike's 30-year recall is pretty photographic. <laughs> um, he remembers things from Highlander 2 that, that I forgot watching it twice in two days um, but also you know this is another ozone layer related storyline and I, I you know after, after watching Highlander 2 and this back to back I just thought there really must have been some buzz about the ozone layer in 1991 for two oh, big yeah. Hollywood movies to make it make um, make it the center of, of their storyline, story, right? <laughs> um, but you know, we, and we 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 alluded to this in the in the minisode that uh, that you know you need to understand 1991 to understand big parts of this movie. Um, it begins yes. with, of course, oh yeah, it begins with George and this is it. This is how far. This is how long ago this is that we have to explain. This is not even the most recent Bush presidency. This is, this right. is uh, Herbert W. Bush. This is H. W. Yeah, um, with a once again a celebrity impersonator, um, and the, the movie basically begins with uh, Frank Drebin brutally beating Barbara Bush. Yeah, for that's a good the joke. five minutes. Yeah. Remember, this movie is one minute twenty-five. There's about five minutes of, and then, and it happens yeah, at the end right. as well. I'd say conservatively, there's about seven minutes of Barbara <laughs> Bush just being Barbara beaten Bush up in this movie. Beaten up. Right. I don't know what that is fractionally, but that's a lot of a one minute twenty-five movie. <laughs> there's a moment too because you know they're walking in, and of course the door flies open, and out comes Drebin, and the door hits yeah Barbara Bush. And so there's this moment where Secret Service is kind of ushering her to her chair, and you see her tweak her nose, and you hear a little crack. Yeah. And, I, you know... I, it's it's merciless. Like the tiny details really matter <laughs> with this kind of comedy. I gotta tell you. Yeah, and it's... Yeah, it's just... Uh, it's uh, certainly setting out its stall... Uh, early on, uh, I've got a good, I've got a good quick fact for you, friend. Oh, okay. Uh, nobody listening to this will will know this, I'm sure. But Tom and I have written together. Yes. Space Force, mm-hmm. which we put up a couple years ago. Couple last year. No, How it's, long has it's it been? getting on a couple of years. Yeah. All right. Time is. Time is slowly, but <laughs> this is the most depressing podcast it's... in the world. Yeah, because this movie has made us realize how old and decrepit we are. Exactly. But to let you personally know, like the effect this movie had on me and how I feel about comedy, there's a joke from this movie mm-hmm. in Space Force. Yeah, and it's essentially the same thing, except we're not standing in the body because we were doing it on stage, and that would be difficult to do. But yeah. again, when they go to that first initial explosion, and he says, "Are there any other victims?" And he goes, "You're standing on one now, Frank." Yeah. And you don't see it, and he just looks. Oh, and he steps off the body. Love it. 
And you know, we we mentioned in the Minnesota about Airplane Two and how the the repeated couple business, the romantic mm-hmm. couple reuniting, really annoyed us because it was clearly like they couldn't think of anything new to put in there. Right here, it really doesn't feel that way. When he reunites with Priscilla Presley as Jane, um, it you know, for want of a better word, feels very authentic. Um, I agree. They add, you know, and and partly they up the ante by making him, you know, jealous and bitter, and they've already split up once, and so they're able to make comic headway with with jokes about Frank's jealousy. So you can, you know, you can go somewhere different with it. Yeah. Uh, but essentially, it is it is the same. And Robert Robert Goulet is a right a very it, deliberate surrogate for a, Ricardo Montalban. A complete. Yeah, exactly. Which is which is very canny because they they they're they they're getting a surrogate character that's not just the same type of on-screen character. It's also the same kind of right. uh, star presence coming presence. into the movie. Exactly. But but a little you know like a and not you know no offense to Robert Goulet, but a little little more low rent, which is exactly <laughs> what you do in a sequel. Right. And I'm sure he was comfortable being the butt of that joke. The butt because, of that joke, right. Because that's right. what you sign up for when you do these kind of movies, I think. All right. Well, we're just getting started, everybody. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Tom and I are going to dive deeper into the smell of fear right after this. I like to think I know something about beer, but nowadays even I get overwhelmed when confronted by the exhaustive selection of craft beers they have at bars, breweries, and even grocery stores. Back in the day you had one, maybe two craft beers to choose from, and if you were confused, you ordered a Guinness. But in beer stations like San Diego, the craft beer options lately are in double, sometimes even triple, digits. So what's a beer drinker to do? You need what I need, the Vegas Beer Guys. Your beer of choice should be a perfect blend of malt and hops. And so a live show about beer needs that same balance. And the Vegas Beer Guys matches beer expert Dan Aker with self-proclaimed beer novice Stephen J. Weiss. The results are eminently drinkable. They're on Facebook. They're on Instagram. They'll try new beers. They'll tell you about beers. Think of them as your beer sherpas guiding you up a foamy-headed mountain to reach the peak of your pint. God, I need a beer. And we are back, ladies and gentlemen. Tom and I are here discussing the 1991 sequel, The Naked Gun Two and a Half, The Smell of Fear. As we've mentioned before, Tom, best title in the series. Yep. <laughs> Just fantastic. And that, you know, you be, the title alone is already, you know, a, a sequel parody. I think that's you know that yeah like from top to bottom this this movie it, it's parodying the the unnecessary subtitles right the, um you know the unnecessarily complex numbering systems of sequels mm-hmm. like in just that one title and basically everything we've been talking about since this podcast began 
is yeah exactly <laughs> is summed up. <laughs> and then it's followed by David Zucker's credit, which says "un film." Yeah, <laughs> David Zucker. <laughs> uh, and then a great joke about exposition's titles, where you you see you see the White House, and then it says the White House, and then yeah. wa- Washington D.C. <laughs> right. Well, I also love because, like, you'd expect kind of a retcon. They're just all in Washington, D.C. for no reason for whatsoever. For no apparent reason. There's just no apparent reason for police squad, for Jane, for everybody from the first story that's coming back to be in D.C. Yeah, that's it. The, 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 the sequel-like retcons of this movie are entirely baked in. Yeah. And that's what I love about it. I, I mean, within minutes, we're looking at someone looking at photographs of yeah, people who right. are in the in the movie. So it's very it's very intentional from um from top to bottom in this movie. I think I think it's undeniable. Uh it's not not even on the fence. Mm-hmm. Um because also, you know, the new police squad commissioner looks unnervingly like uh Nancy so, Marchand who plays oh, the mayor yeah. in the original movie. I and... had to look it up to make sure it was a different person. Right, they exactly look, me too. They they look so much alike. So they're 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 definitely playing on that meta level when it comes to yeah, sequels. Absolutely. This so we're in Washington like. DC <laughs> and uh, for for no reason, as you say, yeah. For no reason. And of course we have a similar thing to the first movie in which a kind of a tycoon type character <laughs> is going to decide to Murder a doctor because he's going to be in generous when you say similar. (laughs) (laughs) That's giving it giving it a little too much uh, variety there. (laughs) You're right. You're right. That's I mean, it's it's uh, it's just it's just perfect. But there's like I mean, yeah, there's like all kinds of just great bits because these. These tycoons are going to try to murder the man who's going to come up with the energy policy for the country mm-hmm. with acronyms like spill, smoke, and kaboom. Yeah. You know, the oil industry. Man, I, I, you know, I just every, you know, there's just so much care into the written jokes of this movie. And I just there love is, it. And what struck me was, you know, and you alluded to this was saying, you know, a, a character joke immediately followed by wordplay. It's the fact that there are so many different kinds of jokes all working together in a yeah. fair, in a fairly coherent whole, at least mm-hmm. in this movie. Um, because we get a lot, you know, we get a lot of political satire in that first scene with the with with. Uh, Bush and also John Sununu, right? Um, <laughs> uh, is is in in the mix and and the ozone layer and and energy. But it's what all... did what did Drebin call the ozone layer? I can't remember. I wish I could. <laughs> um, but there's also you know a, a a lobster claw biting a woman's breast. So yeah, exactly. I mean it's. It, it's... There's a lot of that throughout this whole series. There's lots of grabbing cock and boob jokes right just all over the place and i think you know whatever you know whatever it means representationally which is generally bad mm-hmm. um you know that in the intention is to take is you know any kind anything that feels too elevated or too high-minded needs to be taken down within the frame of the film and right. i think you know one of the ways that you can 
be an apologist for brutally beating a woman as the first comic set piece of the movie mm-hmm. <laughs> is that it's Barbara Bush and she needs to be taken down a peg because you know that that's that's the implication. Right. It's not because yeah. she's not because she's the first. It's not lady. because she's a woman. It's not because right. Right. It's because she she needs to be taken down a peg and and I feel that you know as, as soon as anything feels too uh, sophisticated, shall we say, they immediately bring it. You know, they they bring it down to earth with a comic crash. Yeah. Um, so that feels very very deliberate. Again, really, all it comes down to is is just when you start to see patterns of like that's a lot of jokes about gay people. That's yeah. uh, you know transsexual. Why <laughs> why is OJ Simpson swinging on a rope like tar- like Tarzan? Yeah, right. Um, yes. You know, it's, it's the Seven Eleven without an interpreter line. It, it's just which is extra uncomfortable because now you're in the position of trying to stick up for OJ Simpson. Yeah. Um, so it's uh, that's where it gets difficult. But but I, I, you know, I, I'm I don't want anyone to think that I don't understand and appreciate the politics of bad taste comedy and that that, that requires a certain level of offensiveness. Right. It's when that offensiveness is disproportionate towards disproportionate towards one community that I start to get. Uh, uncomfortable with it mm-hmm. but but i you know i i know that this kind of movie needs to take those pot shots where it can yeah but it should be doing it in a democratic way and it, and uh sometimes i feel like you know one one minority group is getting the the uh you know the fuzzy end of the lollipop a lot of the time right well and so i mean so where do you stand on this movie and police brutality? Because hmm. there's still plenty of jokes that are, work and are funny, but in the light of everything that's happening in our world today, yeah, it's hard to watch. I mean, Drebin's yeah. introduced at the beginning of the movie as having killed his hundredth drug dealer, right? But then it's immediately followed by him saying, "To be fair, <laughs> I backed over the last two with my car." We found yeah. out luck. We found out later, luckily, that they were they happen to be drug dealers. But then the jokes on the police. That's what I mean about the, the. In that case, the jokes on the police. But exactly. Officer. Like and so so but much it isn't of always. it has to do with Drebin as a character. Yeah. This sort of kindly white-haired old man, but who loves to, to you know, pull out his gun and shoot people. Yeah. And a lot of it has to do with him not being the you know. The, the sharpest tool in the shed. Mm-hmm. So it coming back on him and and like the stupidity, but I have to imagine even of course even in ninety one African Americans are watching this movie way different than we are. Right. Yeah, and that's a really you know? important point. Is it's it's actually tray like in that scene where they, um, you know, obviously like a, a low income housing area. Yeah the police are surrounding the house and just blowing it up and then driving a tank through it. And yeah, like there's people watching this movie who would, you know, have tragically lived that or tragically Mm -hmm. witnessed that firsthand. Uh, That would be, that would be different. And, you know, (laughs) 
the, the I, I I don't know if I already said this, but like my favorite running gag of the animals getting released from the zoo, like right. I'd never connected the dots that that happens because of militarized police vehicle smash through smashes the, through, uh, through, so through the like, wall of a zoo. I'm like yeah. that almost ruins it for me. Um, right, but not I mean not enough. I think I think the balance is still pretty much there, but um. I was very, I mean, yeah, you know, what you said about the police brutality, I kind of felt the same when it came to race here. And mm-hmm. um, regard, you know, I, I, <laughs> I'm in the uncomfortable position of feeling sorry for OJ Simpson and how he's used in this movie. But right. it, in this one and, and not in the next one, curiously, which is the, the far inferior movie, um, in this one, you know, he's almost there as a kind of Sammy Davis Jr. figure just to be yeah. kind of... Well, but like, you know, in the way that the Rat Pack used to use Sammy Davis Jr., right. one, to make it okay to joke... To make to joke about race. To be a ra- to make racist jokes. Yeah. And two, to roundlessly mock and humiliate. Yeah. Uh, and that's built into the Nor- Norberg character. That's fine. Um, but... The scene I was really uncomfortable with, apart from him swinging on the rope, which is such an oversight, I can't believe they didn't think about the connotations of that, um, is, and him in the militarized police vehicle, uh, but that's not even what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the scene where they're talking about boxing for some reason, and he says, all I know is never bet on the white guy, and even O.J. Simpson's reaction is kind of like, that's too far. <laughs> you can sort of see him in the background of the shot. Like, I don't know how I'm supposed to react to this, both as the actor and the character. Because it's right. such a racist line. Um, and I think, you know, the only reason he's in the background of that shot is so they feel that, that they can make that joke. And it's... It's strange. It's, you know, there yeah, are, but it's there like are a few the, just off-color, well, you know, to excuse the, problem the pun, is that's the, moments. Yeah, the problem is that joke is the button for a series of jokes that just have to do with boxing names and city names, you that, know? Yeah, exactly, but it doesn't which is, even... Which is all fine. It doesn't need that button. No, exactly. And I don't think they would have done it if if they didn't think it was okay because O.J. Simpson was in the scene. Yeah. And there's a few moments I have like that. Um, but they're also the point where they don't quite know how to use him. But that's the, you know it's strange you say that too because that was a that was a huge part of OJ Made in America was at that time his having to be like to, to like to be on TV mm-hmm. even as an announcer after his career was yeah. over it was like he had to get to a point where white America didn't consider him black right and that's what happened in that moment and in this movie it's like. That's why, you know, that's why they can put him in that scene in that moment as if it doesn't matter. Right. Because right. that's the point that he'd gotten to where he felt where he must have felt like he had to get to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, I'm sure we'll talk about this in the next movie more. But uh, I mean, I think O.J. Made in America is one of the best oh, documentaries it's, it's of all incredible. time. I yeah. may, certainly one, I'd say one of the best movies, if you want to call it a movie of the, cause it's five hours long of the, of the last 
decade for for hands down. Absolutely. Um. So it's yeah, it's 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 really <laughs> it's really interesting, but uh, it's very noticeable how off the pace of the comedy he is in this compared mm-hmm. to like the third movie and the first movie, which I was surprised he's barely in. Really, he's barely in it, right? Because he's, he's really in the more hospital. of a cameo. This is yeah. the first time they're kind of using him as. A... But he's got one of my favorite moments in that movie when he gets shot at the beginning and. My favorite part of that is because he basically what happens is a series like he bonks his head. And that's yeah. what hurts. And, uh-huh. you know, the bear trap and all that shit. But the best part to me is when he gets the gets his shoulder on the paint. Yes. Because he goes up against the wall. And he goes, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> like that. Oh, no. Is fucking great. You know, in this one, they kind of forget to find a character for him. Yeah. Which really stands out because. The rest of the cast is firing on all cylinders. All cylinders the rest of the right? main cast. We've talked yeah. about, uh, like, you know, and Anthony Anthony James and you know Anthony James playing it straight as a henchman because he knows right. how to play that part for real. Likewise, but then you have him loading a gun outside her shower, singing, and I mean it's 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 amazing. It's so wonderful. But in the main cast, I mean, I have Tears nothing... Tears coming down his cheeks, Tom. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Come on. That's why you need the real guy, I think. Yeah, That's exactly. It. The joke only works when it's the real guy. It doesn't work when it's the it's a comedian trying to do that. Um, and on a similar theme, you know, speaking of character actors, for some reason, I, I have severely underappreciated George Kennedy until now, mm-hmm. uh, the, like the work he is doing. Um, oh, in all these movies, yeah. You know, he, he really Do you know is... that, like, they weren't going to let the original Naked Gun... Like, they they did not want to do that movie without a serious actor. Yeah. Like, they they felt like they needed somebody of gravitas. Like, uh, you know, what, somebody what you, with what weight. What are you talking about? The guy from Police Squad is a cop in Highlander. What more gravitas do you need? I know, I know. But so and so they went to George Kennedy and and there was, you know, he agreed to do it. And and that's what kind of got that movie off the ground. Well, I mean, you know, in in this movie, certainly he is just the perfect straight man. Yeah. uh, To to Frank, but also just just to to the movie, to the movie. I have a note. I have a note here that says George Kennedy and a mechanical dildo on a stick. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. I have no no extra note for this. I it's just want to remind myself that it happened. <laughs> it's his reaction to it. Um, and I, so I, I think it's it's great. And I also, you know, I want to talk. We're talking about a lot of men. It's the same kind of bust. <laughs> Pris- oh yes, it's very impressive. Pris- Priscilla Presley. I no, here here here's what I think. I don't know how much she knows what she's doing but she pitches everything perfectly yeah i don't know if she is some great acting genius and she's been able to hide it all these years that's what i was that's what that's (laughs) where my mind went to and i was so shocked that i mean it's like it's these three movies ford fairlane and almost nothing else dallas i mean other than dallas of course but but Dallas was before all of that. I'm sure she had so, to act a lot being married to Elvis Presley for two years. For sure. <laughs> but. but <laughs> Acts not offended by him cheating on lots with lots of women. Yeah. yeah. 
So I was just kind of astonished to see that, you know, somewhere in between all of these movies, uh, Ford Fairlane got made, but it's like that movie and these three movies, and for a film career, that's about it. And she's really good in these movies. Yeah, and, you know, I I was trying to... I was using Dallas as the kind of barometer in the same way that, you know, they're channeling so much of Anthony James from his character actor roles. I'm wondering how much they're channeling the soap actress Mm. to do the kind of the parody of, you know, bad dialogue and bad film continuity and all that sort of stuff that you associate with soap opera. But she always seems on top of the comic material in a way that makes me think, Maybe you. Maybe she just knows how to instinctively how to make this comedy work because work, right in that if she was ever overplaying it or even underplaying it for that matter, it would not land. Mm-hmm. If she ever looked like she knew too much about what was going on, the comedy of it is ruined. Yeah, and and it's interesting. I mean, I really admire Leslie Nielsen, and I'm not. I'm not about to say anything negative about him i'm just going to talk briefly about the the differences between the the leslie nielsen performances in police squad and to to a great extent airplane Mm -hmm. and the naked gun movies uh you know in those earlier incarnations he was still doing parody and pastiche and all the things he's doing here but he's doing it in a way that is indistinguishable from the real thing yeah but the naked gun movies a little that's, different. That's not the case because yeah. he's mugging to camera a lot. Right. He's finding himself as a comic actor. He has full on but he still has physical that thing. comedy bits. Yeah. But he also uh, still has that thing where he feels grounded as the yeah. gumshoe detective. So he's still able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. He's definitely he's still he's still able to to manage those those things. And um I've seen him interviewed and I've heard him talk about his admiration for Chaplin. Mm-hmm. Um, the, Charlie Chaplin, not the that Robert makes Downey sense. Jr. movie. Um, <laughs> and I think a lot of that mugging to camera is, you know, him kind of discovering that side of himself, you know, that this, to sort of, because this is film comedy as opposed, film, film parody as opposed to Police Squad and Airplane, which I consider to be more media pastiche. Mm-hmm. This is, this is more... Uh, I don't know. I mean, there's obviously your know, parody. Parody is here, but it it's it requires him to be more of a a movie comedy lead, much more right. of a kind of all rounder. Um, because I mean, that's the fascinating thing about Leslie Nielsen is that this is the beginnings of his career as a comic actor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is the start of the whole second act. You know, he was the I straightest mean, of straight men for so right, many years for so in, long. in Hollywood and TV. Uh, airplane and Police Squad allowed in, him to make the transition. Airplane, right. Um, and this is him fully embracing it and and you know doing comedy as comedy rather than um, you know playing comedy straight for comic effect yeah um and you know i i think that's the it's very very funny he can still bring it back to that but he's got um something else going on but i i I thought i i this just quality is written through this entire cast yeah um except for except for oj simpson but he discovers himself in the next movie so that's (laughs) that was obviously the movie's fault not his right 
All right, let's take one more break and then we'll come back and we'll finish up with the Naked Gun two and a half. If you like podcasts like I do, boy, do I have a treat for you. You need to stay on target and check out the Sounds and Cinema podcast. Listen as your host, sound designer and music creator, Tony Parham, and co-host, musical performer and sound lover, Derek Hansen, D-Rock if you're nasty, and I am, discuss all things sound related to film, television, stage, and theatrical productions. They discuss environmental sounds, bioacoustics, dialogue, the nature of communication through sound, but as an added bonus, they drink beer and try to... Stay on target! Find them wherever you get your podcasts and listen to the pure mania of a man who can charitably be described as Doug, the dog from Up, and another man with a soothing and sultry voice trying to get that man to... Stay on target! That's the Sounds and Cinema Podcast. Tune in and listen to the sounds they are creating just for you. And we are back yet again, ladies and gentlemen. Tom and I are here finishing out the Naked Gun two and a half, The Smell of Fear. All right, Tom. I have one other kind of political beef with this film. What's the beef? <laughs> and that an early '90s thing as well. Well, it was where, but but I like I like that you changed it. Now, so let me ask you this: Did you notice there's so much that we're talking about mental health right now? Mm-hmm. Like I have a note that says this is back when we made fun of depression. Who's depression? Sorry, I'm I, just when we were in the bar, and you have. <laughs> I didn't even I didn't even clock that you that didn't link. Clock You're it. absolutely a, right. The the cigarette woman, except she's got nooses and she's got revolvers <laughs> and she's got all kinds of manner of ways for you to end your own life. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know. No, when you're I... not depressed, I'm sure you might think that's hysterical. But when you are depressed <laughs> Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, no, I hadn't even clocked that. Um, but uh, yeah, it's absolutely, it's absolutely. The but case. it's just you know, it's any, one of those things kind of, that's peppered throughout of, this movie. Any kind of physical adversity, I think, is is game for uh, comic lampoon here. Yeah, which is occasionally well, problematic. The the Naked Gun two and a, or the Naked Gun series version of Q. Whose wife is is he's going? What is he going on? Is he going on Phil Donahue? That's right. Yeah, transsexual Satan worshiper. His wife is. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we get a few. We we get a few. Um, trans but again, jokes. that's also surrounded by the jokes that I like, where he's 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 talking about all the scientific stuff that that they're trying to do to find a clue. Yeah, and then he picks up a wallet. He says, "Actually, this wallet was at the scene. We haven't had a chance to look at it yet." Which is kind That's of pre- a sublimely prescient. silly joke. Well, it's it's also you know they're they're satirizing media that's yet to be made because you know there are whole episodes of CSI mm-hmm. based around that line of investigation. Right. Um, 
And I, I also, you know, I, ha- I had a couple of moments where I thought that uh, uh, Mike Myers must have been big, a big fan of these movies. Yeah. Because it, it certainly how how the they... structure of the the Austin Powers movies feels very similar to these. And the and and the way that they mounted Wayne's World two in relation to Wayne's World is very similar to how this sequel uh, interacts with that with mm. the original movie in a very knowing, uh, repetitive, knowingly repetitive way. Right. Um, but yeah, no, and you know the 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 sex gags, the uh, montage of um, of entry. <laughs> That's the nicest way to say it. Right. Uh, that, that comes up again in Austin Powers. This, it, you know, we. This is the origin, at least as far as I can see, is the baddie telling everyone his plan, gag, yeah, right. which is you know structures Austin Powers, the Austin Powers movies. Here it's just kind of thrown away by Robert Goulet. In a, in he a just great... says, "All right." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> then he <laughs> unprompted into it. gives up his plan. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Yeah, and, and you know some some other Bond parodies as well. Like they they do a well the the nuclear bomb at the end is totally Goldfinger. It's just Goldfinger, which is yeah. And uh, in my mind, those two things are, are, are cemented. You know, I talk about Mandela affecting jokes from one movie in this trilogy to another. I probably actually put moments from this in Goldfinger <laughs> <laughs> because again, it's like it's it rubs up. These movies are so good; they rub up against the real thing so plausibly that sometimes you can just like uncross your eyes and forget what you're watching. <laughs> right. Forget whether you're watching the real thing or the parody. Um, yeah, and there's so many moments like that here that are. Uh, but it's just funny because I'm also looking at my notes, and we're talking about how it, you know, the movie Carbon dates itself. So you have references to like I mean whole set pieces about ghost. Ghost, yeah. You know. But That's... it's also got one of my favorite moments because when, <laughs> when you when she's touching his chest and it's, you know, <laughs> it's like the biggest piece of beefcake in the history of the world, but when she reaches into his pants and takes out clay. Yeah. And then they cut to a a look on Leslie Nielsen's face, which is the most wonderful yes like it's not even quizzical yeah. it's 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 matter of fact but it's <laughs> it's like a pleasure yeah but not the pleasure of what's happening in the scene right <laughs> like, i mean it's just you yeah. know those are the moments i love and that was a i mean that was a, a paramount movie as well so they obviously had the rights the music the images right. without any um unproblematically um i think i like as a it's interesting because as a rule um i mean there are some movie parodies in here as a rule i always think that the zucker abrams people are are, are and this is certainly true in the next movie are always better than always better when they're sending up something that's a little bit older Mm -hmm. like when when they're sending up something that's you know something as recent as like you know a year ago it feels like they're trading off the same jokes that everyone else are uh, you're right but when they get into... as opposed to like when you're when you're taking off like dime store detective novels exactly that's yeah 
Um, I mean, that goes all the way back to airplane, uh, to, to airplane being, you know, having actual lines from airport. the airport movies in them. Yeah. Um, I just think they're way more comfortable with that kind of classic Hollywood when they do the psycho parody here and when they do a Casablanca parody here. Mm-hmm. It just feels a little bit more educated, a little more nuanced. <laughs> like they're dong, they're, the they're, they're picking out the things that they're picking out <laughs> things that kind of like you know movie buffs. Right, but when it's ghost, it's like, well, it's the pottery scene. That's what everyone makes fun of. Yeah. Um. So I think as a rule, that that's kind of, and there's a great example of it in the next movie, which we'll. we'll but talk as a about. movie lover, you love those moments with, you know, the reference to Casablanca and. Well, absolutely, but it's actually it, it's like those, the older the parody, the more interestingly it's done. Yeah, exactly. Kind of general rule here. Um. But play our song. Play our song. Ding, ding dong, the witch dong, is dead. The witch is dead. The um, witch is dead. But but you know the, it's great. The 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 ghost parody feels more like the kind of carbon dating mm-hmm. part of the movie than right. the movie yeah. parody part of the movie, which is also you know. So there are two levels of that kind of movie parody. There's like what's happening in movies now, and there's like what is the classic timeless thing to parody you know a hitchcock movie or a bogart movie well Um, and that scene also because it not only parodies psycho but it also parodies action movies because their fight is (laughs) i mean i referenced it once already but we didn't do the whole thing i talked about the throwing the towel in the face but the electric toothbrush in the mouth with the foaming followed by the the hair dryer is that? I mean, is that? I don't want to. I don't want to make it too specific because I. I think the the comedy. It's it's like probably whatever movie you're thinking it is, but I I did think is that specifically are they thinking about Fatal Attraction? I and the struggle in the bathroom because I I I got flashbacks to that, but I think you? I think it is like in it's like comedy that's in the the parody is in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, you could think of like for me it was more general action comedy where like the knife the is slowly coming. Yeah, you know the knife, but instead it's the electric toothbrush, uh, followed by the, the the thing you find next to your whatever you're fighting next to, and and in this scene it just happens to be the hair dryer. Yeah. Um, I I I agree. I think, but that to me is when this movie is at at its best. When it's when those are the jokes, I'm in love with this movie. Yeah, it's. I think when when they, or even a simple line like, like Jane grabbing him, and he says, "Jane, you're hurting me." Yes. <laughs> and it, it, that's the kind of interesting because, the the, the next movie will start to start to really start to make jokes about gender fluidity in a way that's yeah. increasingly uncomfortable but here i feel like it's it's just for the it's just for the re- the fun of reversing the trope yeah absolutely like in that moment the fact that she grabs him instead of her and and he gets i mean it's like yes you can say it's part of a pattern that you start to see where you know men acting like women is funny and that's not a good thing Mm-hmm. But um, in that moment is the the fact that they you know that just it just switches your expectations and that creates the comedy and that's why it's comedy right that's why it's funny and also you know the, the when she takes off her high heels 
Yeah, um, right. and she's like two foot tall, uh, which again is like you know it's like that you think, but you would think that that would be the joke you you have with a man. The fact that it's a woman doing it makes it funnier somehow, right? Um, but I don't know why. But I but I don't think it's offensive. <laughs> it's <my laughs> I don't know. I may right. be wrong, but I don't think that element of this movie is is, is offensive. But uh, they they cross the line. Well, the other one that I think they get like they get to a T that's really fantastic is the the interrogation towards the end where they're the the money's going back and forth. Oh. But that's a really that's a really important point because um like the 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 running gag of police squad was the shoe shine Right, informer who <laughs> yeah. would tell him everything he needed everything. to know. Uh, he would while he was having his shoe shines, he would just keep giving him money, and he would tell you know he would give him an encyclopedic knowledge of everything. So they needed to come up with something different but equally as funny as that here, mm-hmm. and also they don't have that actor. Um, so <laughs> the fact that they have this scene where a co- <laughs> where Frank Drebin and a, and a suspect are exchanging money between them for interrogation is a nice rephrasing I don't remember. of that. Yeah, do you remember now? No, it's still a little hazy. How about now? <laughs> that's so true because that's that's when this movie's on fire. It's 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 rephrasing old jokes in a way that uh, are just as inventive, but they're right. just not they're not new. You know, they've been done. They're not new, but yeah, exactly. They just work. The followed only time by, it kind of followed by the explosion that he's trying to get information out of somebody and he dies. And he says, "All right, who else is almost dead?" When they um. Yeah, when they narrow it, it's I mean it's all all the way back to airplane and police squad. When they narrow in on a trope, right? When they identify that trope, uh, and send up the trope, it, it's that's to me when it works perfectly well. Is when is what you know you can't relate it to like you know I threw Fatal Attraction, but I can think of a thousand bad action you know like. Uh, hysterical action sequences in small spaces. I mean, that was mm-hmm. the 80s, basically. Um, you right. know, that was the, the entire decade of movies. Um, so, yeah, I think that's where the movie's kind of firing on all cylinders. And again, just that sort of slightly elusive, not elusive, but I-double-L, elusive mm-hmm. quality of, like, these two guys could be doing the scene for real because... You know, I guess not Leslie Nielsen at this point, but at some point in his career, it could have been Leslie Nielsen and Anthony James in a fight yeah. scene in something f- for real. There probably real. there probably is one out there, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I just I just love that well, that and I sort also... of you blink and you forget that it's parody yeah. that and they're able you, to just what you have pull back more than anything is the overwhelming sense of the Zucker brothers. Being movie fans themselves, there's even that moment towards the end when uh, O.J. Simpson kind of lets it out of the bag that there is a nuclear bomb or there, <laughs> that there is a bomb and everybody starts panicking. Yes. And that one person wa- rocks across the screen and he says, it's a cookbook. It's a cookbook. <laughs> That's right. Twilight Zone. Total reference to, to a Twilight Zone episode, which is, 
I mean, unless you love Twilight Zone, you're not going to get that. And so... This is the first time I, I would have known that watching the movie as well. Really? Yeah, yeah. probably. I, I, I mean, you know, I watched these movies very young and haven't seen them for a long time. Because I used to watch The Twilight Zone all the time as a kid. I don't think I'd seen that one at that particular... Right. That particular point. It, yeah, I... I <laughs> that's, that's so true. They're... They're able to just, but but particularly that era, I think, yeah, when they were in that fifties, sixties, uh, era of of when media. they call back to that, it's really delicious. They, Calling back to a movie that came out the year before this one is, of course, just going to be less so. And that's kind of you know, as a point of contrast, that's really all we get in the next movie. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Right. Because they have an Academy Awards theme, which, for for exactly what you're saying, the fact that the Zuckers are movie lovers seems like a good move. But what it actually does is it kind of traps you in, uh, in a you know it 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 traps you into doing lots of movie parodies that otherwise you wouldn't necessarily have in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um. So maybe that maybe that's part of the you know big part of the problem there is that they. Uh, you want <laughs> you want to keep your movie parodies separate from your carbon dating. Well, and I, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know that that age old saying. <laughs> yeah, well, because I know, and it's not just the Zuckers. Because what's the other like? They're always with Pat Proft, I believe. Yes, and. Because they're involved in the next one, but it's not directed. It's, you know, somebody else takes over the directing helm. Interesting. So I don't know if that had a part to do with that or not. It, it would, I mean, it, it would seem to, I think, you know, this is a, this is a movie that feels like, feels expert in every department. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like anyone is missing the boat anywhere. Whereas I definitely get the sense with the next movie that that's how I felt. Um, the just, clever jokes just aren't in the next one for me. Well, you it's, know the it, six foot three, awfully big mustache. That kind of stuff's like void from that. It's movie. all it's all a slide. It's all a sliding scale. But I think you've got to get that. You you've got to have that. You got to have a real level of craft behind the the most ludicrous joke. Well, right. you have to if have that combination. This, or if you're going to do this kind of movie, and we've talked about this several times, yes, the level of craft has to be there. Mm-hmm. Because as you said, the joke rate has to be at a high rate, and they have to land at that rate. <laughs> you know, and and that's you know, like I I. F- and this movie delivers. I think so. And what's kind of interesting to you know, I, the the first movie and the and the third movie are very much centered around big set pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, it works in the first one. It works less well in the third one. It's right. Still the saving grace of the movie, but st- but it works less well for sure. Here, like I can't think of any one set piece that is like outstanding but the the comedy i just think of the comedy throughout 
there's a comedy through line. Yeah, exactly. That is the, you know, it, it's carrying the blood and the oxygen to, to the whole movie. Yeah, and, you know, I, I, I remember looking at, you know, the mariachi scene towards the end of this movie and mm-hmm. thinking, well, I mean, that pales in comparison to the baseball stadium sequence from, from right. the last movie, but but I'm not just, like, I, well, sometimes I feel like the naked gun is kind of pinning all its hopes on that sequence sometimes, at least structurally. Mm. But I never feel that here. I feel like, you know... No, all, yeah, I'll agree with that. All that, the like... all the bits kind of pay off. Like, I mean, it's gone yeah. all back way to the beginning, but the scene where the custodians are holding a bomb and then just, like, talking about... Right. Like, well, it's a clock. Or it's like, who would throw away this nice clock? And... There's a scene oh, it's in... got the wrong time. Let yeah. me wind it for you. Yeah, and they just—it feels like they farmed out the comedy in every part of the movie, and I think that's why I always gravitated back towards this one because I, I just felt it was a fuller experience as a as a as a film as a screenplay. Um, you know, right? Like it's even like letting other actors in the movie do the Leslie Nielsen look to camera. Yeah. I think makes a huge difference. This in the Casablanca parody scene, the waiter turns to the camera at one point and just shakes his head at something that Leslie Nielsen it was, said. Well, it was the bar scene. Yeah. And at first he says, Give me something strong, and so a a well oiled, muscled man shows up. Yeah. And he says, On second thought, just give me a black Russian. And he looks at the camera and shakes. He his looks head. at the camera. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, I just I feel I I don't know something something about it feels like it feels holistic. Yeah, <laughs> the comedy the comedy in this. And another, I guess for uh, me, I I I gravitated towards the first one because they were so laser focused on that sort of dime store detective novel that that's yeah. really throughout the whole thing, and I love that about that. I'm movie. not disparaging that movie at all, but I no, I, yeah, I know. I I wanted to I I wanted to believe that there was a reason other than having to rewind the tape back to the beginning that meant I'd watch this more and w- look but watching right. back at it I I I can give myself the credit of saying I think this is a smarter overall screenplay than right. the ori- than the original movie uh and so I can see why you know even young me would have gravitated Towards, towards it. another it. another running gag that I think is excellent in this is and it's such a cinematic thing. This is what and again this goes back to everything we're saying about when when they when they nail the trope and send it up, they're they're just it's perfect comedy. Right. Is the, there's there's two or three stunt double jokes in here <laughs> when Leslie Nielsen is replaced by stunt actors. Yes, right. Whether it's dancers or body doubles, it like I, I, every time it happens, I think it's just it's just perfect. I mean, you know, making jumping over rails, making and behind computers, especially as like you know a fan of the of of the the Bond films and the late Roger Moore Bond films, and you know everything in View to a Kill is everything you see that's active is not Roger Moore, right? And here, I think the fact that they make a virtue of that. Uh, repeatedly that, you know, Leslie Nielsen is a... They're not shying away from the fact that Leslie Nielsen is an aging actor. And, you know, he's like, he can do physical comedy, but he's not going to do, 
you know, the the work of an action star. He's not going to jump from the second story to the yeah. first story. And pointing yeah. out those, um, you know, those clashes when the stunt It's a great runner. It's a great runner. And they continue it from the first movie because he's doing flips and stuff in his own apartment in that movie. Right. And yeah. he, for some reason, the, the, the <laughs> I always remember the image of him crashing through the when he's at the docks, he crashes yeah. through the roof. The, <laughs> the, no, the sorry, air. the stunt actor crashes through the yeah. roof, and it's he's a complete mess. And then he slicks back his hair, and he's perfect again. And he's quafted. And you know, I, I, that's that's people who have seen movies where film continuity has been horribly butchered. Right, <laughs> and yet you know, just think what it takes to get that continuity wrong, the extra effort you have to go yeah, through to right. get the continuity wrong in that, just in that way, uh, is twice as much as you would have to like keep track of a you know how much drink is in a glass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just, so, uh, yeah, you know, this movie's, this movie's comedically wonderful yeah and that that's my final word on the subject anything else for you no i don't think so i think i think it's all been said yeah Uh, i think i think you know it's off off color moments in this movie yeah probably weren't much of a concern for people at the time um but they're a concern now but this is the tip of the iceberg (laughs) Yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> and you would think that this being the older movie, that this would be more problematic than the movie made in 94, but apparently not. Apparently but we nope. were going backwards. We went uh, backwards as we went forwards. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you have something to say on the subject of the naked gun, two and a half, the smell of fear, by all means, let us know on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or send us an email to everythingsequel at gmail.com. For Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions, I am Michael Schantz. I'm from the How Dare You Awards. You'll hear us next time for the naked gun, 33 and a third, the final insult. Say goodbye, Tom. Who else is almost dead? <laughs> I love that line so much. All right, take care, everybody. <laughs>